0: We'll be looking at Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. And what these verses are going to be talking about is that justification is not received. And we're going to talk about justification, that word. What does that mean? We, we hear it a lot. But, but that justification is received not on the basis of works, but by faith in the one who was punished in our place. Therefore, we will see that God is both the just and the justifier and to him be the glory hear the word of the lord
1: but now the righteousness of god has been manifested apart from the law although the law and prophets bear witness to it the righteousness of god through faith in jesus christ for all who believe for there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of god In Jesus. We all pray with me. Holy Father, we come to you now asking that you may open the eyes of our hearts that we might behold the wondrous things in your law. The very fact that you gave the law, all in route to showing that you are just and you are the justifier. God, I pray that you would eliminate distractions from our minds now. If our eyes feel dull and weary and tired, may you liven them to, uh, to look up and to listen, to hear your word proclaimed now. Give Greg the power of your spirit, the love for you, Father, the compassion for us people, this congregation. God, that we might grow and that ultimately, this moment right now would be one of worship to you. May you be praised and honored now in the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen.
0: Yeah. So, beginning back in Romans one eighteen and continuing through to Romans three twenty last week, uh, there's basically been a threefold message, and, and I just want to re- re- kind of review that before we jump into today. Um, first of all, God will not permit mankind to continue in his sin and go unpunished. So that's the first thing that we saw. God's wrath will be poured out upon all wickedness and wicked doers. So we, we see that in Romans 1.18. What does it say? For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So that's the first thing. Second thing we've seen in the second message Here's the, here's the, here's the, that's bad news, right? More bad news is we are all sinful. We're all wicked, and therefore we are all under that wrath. We are all under the judgment of God, Romans 3, 9 through 11. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. So that's pretty incriminating. But then we see this third message that we've covered. And that is that the righteousness needed to appease that holy God who is pouring his wrath out upon sinners cannot be obtained by any work that we do, any any goodness that we can try to conjure up. Romans 3 20 says, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So bad news, right? I mean, God is angry with sin. God will punish sin and wickedness. And there ain't nothing we can do about it. We are those sinners under that wrath and there's nothing that we can do about it. Once again, and welcome to another positive message here at Grace Covenant Church, I guess I could say. And, and yet what, what we're doing here is we're simply reiterating what the first three chapters of Romans has set up for us in this courtroom scene where, where Paul, through the power and inspiration of the Holy Spirit, puts all mankind on, on trial. And so this is the bad news. But now we've been telling you for weeks, there's good news coming, right? And and so thank the Lord, today as we begin in verse 21, we will see glorious, glorious news, right? Because from the beginning of this message today, Romans 3.21, all the way through Romans 8, chapter 8, verse 39, Paul explains the grace of God provided in the gospel. This is the good stuff. This is the good news. But again, as I've said and I will continue to say over and over Paul gives us an example of evangelism in Romans. We begin the gospel message, the good news of redemption in Christ, with the bad news that we're all sinners. We must begin there. We must begin with the fact of who God is. He's a holy God who hates sin and therefore is pouring his wrath out upon all evildoers. Well, who are those evildoers? You and I, all of us. That's the bad news. We got to hear that first in order to understand why we need the good news that there's a savior. There's a redeemer. So let's notice how Paul beginning today begins to just unfold the glories of redemption and grace and justification in the gospel. So verse 21 <laughs> begins. Yeah. My favorite word in the Bible, but thank God for the butts of the Bible. That's a whole sermon. It can get you in trouble sometimes, depending on how you, you say it. But you understand what I'm saying, folks. This is glorious news. Listen. But now. And Paul means this emphasis. This is an, an, he's meaning to emphasize this, this contrast. There's wrath. There's death. There's hell. There's hopelessness for all human beings. That's our state from birth. But. Now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Man, that's the best news. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus for all who believe. That's the good news. The righteousness of God is made manifest apart from the law through the righteous work of Christ And all those who by faith believe it are made righteous. Look at that. He goes on to say, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. Now, before we stop, I love it. We could stop there and that gift would be a cheap gift, but it's not. We're justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. This is what Paul lays out throughout the remainder of Acts. But boy, what a, a, an amazing, glorious bit of news. Ex tenebris lux. You say, what? You just lost it. That's, that's a glorious phrase from the Reformation. It's in Latin. What does it mean? Out of the darkness, light. And that's what the gospel is. It's this glorious light of God's grace bursting through the darkness of our death and sin and hopelessness. (laughs) tenebris lux. This is the good news. So at the end of this month, October 31st, we will celebrate not Halloween, but Reformation Day. Reformation Day. For it was on that day, October 31st, 1517, that a monk nailed 95 theses, Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses on the door of the Wittenberg Church in East Germany and basically lit the fuse to what would become known as the Protestant Reformation. Now here's the the point of that. At the center of that debate was the doctrine of justification, the very thing we're going to learn about today. This was the very center of that, that, that whole debate. Martin Luther said... If this article of justification stands, the church stands. If this article collapses, the church collapses. This is how important justification is and getting justification right is. John Calvin said justification is the main hinge on which salvation turns. Therefore, if you get justification wrong, you have no salvation. J.I. Packer put it this way, the doctrine of justification by faith alone is the atlas that carries the whole of the Christian faith on his shoulders. Justification. By faith alone and Christ alone. So what is this justification? What, what is justification? Now, basically, justification is a legal declaration that somebody has been pardoned and made right. This is, this is what God does. Only God can do that. Now, here's, here's the thing about that. What... The Roman Catholic Church and the Protestants both believed that only God could declare a person justified. So, so both believed this, that a person had to be declared justified by God. Both believed this. The question was, on what basis does God declare a person justified? That was the question. On what basis does God declare the unrighteous Righteous. For the Roman Catholics, it was on the basis of a person's works. Basically, it came down to the fact that they believe God has to declare a person righteous, but he can only declare a person righteous if they are already righteous. However, Paul said, Romans 3:20, for by works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight. So if somebody's saying, wait, we've got to be good, we've got to get righteous, so we've got to obey the law first. Get righteous so God can then declare us righteous. But Paul says, wait a minute. We can't do enough good works. We can't keep the works. Because by the work of the law, no flesh will be declared righteous or just by God. So then on what basis does God declare a sinner righteous? And this is where we're at today. So I'm glad you asked that question. I'm glad you're here today. And let's notice what the Bible says. By the way, this is where our faith is, folks. If we are Christians who have believed that God saved us, we need to know how he did it. We need to know what he teaches about that. We need to know way more than I said a prayer when I was 10 years old and repeated the words of somebody else. We need to know where our faith rests. And it rests in the promises of God's word that cannot fail. we got to know them to put our faith in them. Your faith is no better than the object it's placed in, folks. Just faith alone. Faith, faith got to have faith. No, we, we need to know where we're placing that faith. And that's what Romans gives us. Romans three twenty three through 25, look what it goes on to say here. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's all of us, universal, we're all helpless. And look, look at the rest. And all therefore are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now look at this, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. So that's the, the elements of our salvation. Everything that saves a human being is in that verse. Everything that declares us righteous is in those verses. Our justification, the declaration that we are righteous, is put forward by the blood of Christ. It's bought by us by the blood of Christ. Therefore, the declaration of my righteousness, when God says, when, 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 when God says Frank, you are righteous, Not on the basis that you were the greatest coach of all time in wrestling history. Not on that basis. Not on the basis that you're a good husband or a faithful man. Not on that. It's on the basis that Christ shed his perfect blood for you. And that Christ kept the law perfect for you. Your works don't earn your favor. My works works can't earn God's favor. It's the perfect work of Christ. Christ. He lived 33 years in our stead, keeping every law, every commandment perfect, not just on the outside, but from the heart and mind. The very being of his soul obeyed God. We can never say that, but that's what God demands. And that's why no flesh will ever be justified by the works of the law. We can't do them properly enough, but Jesus did. And not only that, then the very wrath of God that we do deserve because we've broken God's law, that had to be paid as well. And so Christ pays that. Do you see it? My righteous works were paid for by Christ and earned by Christ. And the death I deserve and the wrath I deserve was also paid for by Christ. Therefore, salvation is in Christ alone. That's the message. So let's continue to build upon this and and learn learn more. Right? So, so, So here's what Paul is saying. So when by faith we believe in Christ. God declares us justified on the basis of his redemptive work for us. So what is that redemption? What's that word redemption? What's the definition of that? It simply means to purchase in order to make one free. To be bought out of slavery is the term all throughout the Old Testament. The idea of one who is, who is hopelessly lost and unable to be free and yet redeemed by someone else. They've been purchased bought out of that slavery, given freedom. That's what redemption is. So unlike Rome, who teaches that a person must first attain righteous, or some kind of righteous state before God declares them righteous. And by the way, folks, this is where purgatory comes from. This is that idea of that doctrine. I think, obviously, practically at some point, the divines of Rome had to realize people aren't really earning this in this life. There's not enough time for them to get sanctified perfectly so they invent a way whereby we can do that and so purgatory is where you continue to pay for your sins until you're made just by suffering yourself and then god will declare you righteous folks unlike that the Bible's very plain here we are declared righteous even while we are still sinners <laughs> that's the glory of god's grace it's based on christ's righteousness not mine that's what grace means. As we see here, by the way, that, that, takes, that makes grace a little different than it's preached in most churches. That's not a cheap grace. That's not just God saying, all right, never mind. It's okay. Come on in. I, I love you. You're a cool guy. No. It was purchased. It was valuable. It, was re- we, it cost the blood of Christ. It's on that basis. That our righteousness has been paid for. So our righteousness is not free. Our declaration of being righteous before God and being forgiven is not free. It was paid for by Christ's perfection and work and death. And what that is, it's the doctrine of imputation. It's an imputed righteousness, not an earned righteousness. That's what, again, this whole Protestant Reformation was all about when, they were, when, when this Catholic monk realized, wait a minute, we're putting the emphasis on the wrong place. We can't earn God's favor. We, we can't earn it. The just shall live by faith, the Bible says. It's his righteousness, not mine. That was the whole point. And, and the idea is we're not earning that righteousness. He has to give us that righteousness or we're not going to have it. Imputation, the idea of imputation, what does that mean? It's the act of ascribing the attributes of one person to another. And that's what happened by faith when I believed Christ is the only hope. God took his righteousness, his perfection, his perfect life that he lived in every law he obeyed. And he put that record on us. He imputes the righteousness of christ to us this is what second corinthians 5 21 is all about here it is here's where our salvation is here's where my faith is here's what i rest in that for our sake he god made him christ to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of god do you see that as matter of fact, in that verse, we see something known as double imputation. Wow. Lo- I'm telling you, these are good words. I know people say, what in the world are these words? They're good. These would be your best words, your favorite friends. I mean, justification, redemption, imputation. Thank the Lord, bring on more. Imputation. Eh? Double imputation. What does that mean? This is what happened. In that verse, not only was Christ's righteousness imputed to me, but my sin and failure and weakness and and total inability, all my sin was, was, was placed on him. It was the great exchange. He took our wickedness and our sin on himself. And therefore, when he went to the cross, he suffered in our place literally paying for our literal sin that was placed upon him. He became our sin. He was made to be sin. So that what? We could take on his righteousness. The great exchange. You see, it's a great exchange. That's what salvation is. Now look at the rest of this. Let's let's look at another word because since we're so happy about learning words, I know you are. This is, is, again, how do Christians grow in their faith? We have to have something for our emotions to rest on and it's the truth's that we find in scripture. So there's another great word. Look at this in verse 3, uh, 23 through 25. Let's put it all together again. He says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That means there's no way we can be ever, I want to just keep reiterating this folks. There is no way any human can be perfect is what he's saying because we've all sinned and we fall short of God's perfection and we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation. There's the word. Propitiation. A propitiation by his blood. And how is it received? By faith. We don't earn it, it's by faith. Now this word is necessary. Now the, 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 the propitiation. What, is, what does that mean? Helasterion in the Greek. It, it has two interpretations. are both correct one is simply mercy seat if you will it's remember in the old testament what was the mercy seat in the temple it was the place where the blood was applied the sacrificial blood was brought into the temple and it was on the mercy seat that that blood was sprinkled so the mercy seat is the place sins are forgiven it's the place But the other word that many times is interpreted here for the word propitiation is expiation. Expiation. Which means the means whereby a sinner is forgiven. So there's a place a sinner is forgiven and there's the means. So basically there's the the altar of the sacrifice and the actual sacrifice itself that is sacrificed. Now both of these words apply here. In many translations actually... Substitute the word expiation for propitiation and they're both correct. I mean, let's face it folks Again, I know i'm being kind of technical here. I'm not going to split hairs over this Thank the lord for both (laughs) Thank the lord that christ is the means of my forgiveness and the place where my sins Are forgiven But I do think in this context it leans more toward propitiation being the correct word the idea of a mercy seat the idea of the place whereby the wrath is poured out on the sacrifice. I think there's a reason for that. Based on the context of everything we've seen so far in Romans, does it not fit the context to say that Christ was in the place of receiving God's wrath for us? God is going to pour out his wrath upon all sin and all sinfulness and all wickedness. Christ takes on that wickedness and therefore he takes The wrath of God. So that's propitiation. What does that do when Christ takes our wrath? It appeases the Father who is angry at sin. Now, this again, this is the kind of language that makes people mad at God. God can't be angry, He's God. He's the loving grandfather up there that never gets mad. But but we've got to see what the Bible says about God. And the Bible says that God is angry with the wicked all day long, He hates sin, He's holy. So therefore, this glorious truth, that that anger towards sin, which therefore, folks, let's just don't sugar, we can't sugarcoat this. If a holy God is angry towards sin and his wrath is coming after sin and we are sinners covered in the stuff, we're in trouble. If God is angry at that sin and that wickedness and those wicked acts and we're doing them there's an anger toward us from a holy God, rightfully so. So we need propitiation. Propitiation removes the wrath. It appeases the anger. That's what, that's what that word implies. There's, there's a pouring out against that sin. That sin is therefore paid for justly, and now the anger is gone. Do you see that? Now, some would say, here's, now, now, I know, I, so there's a couple of, objections to this there's a couple of good answers john stott kind of makes makes this plain some would say well wait a minute what makes that different than pagan appeasement you know the pagan gods that that sounds like a pagan god that has to be appeased by a sacrifice and that's what we get as christians when we preach the gospel many people will say i don't believe in that because that's just a pagan god you know that's that's a petty god who would would be angry and punish people because he's mad there's two ways that's that, that, that christian propitiation is not like pagan propitiation first the need for this propitiation. Why is the propitiation necessary for the pagan? Well, because their gods, little g, are bad-tempered and moody. They have mood shifts all the time. They have lover's triangles and quarrels, and they get mad and petty, and they throw out thunderbolts for fun. And so the pagan needs propitiation because of an unstable little g god who can't control his anger. But for the Christian, the Christian answer of propitiation is that God's holy wrath rests on evil. What that means is there is nothing uncontrolled about God's anger. It's not petty. It's not reflexive. He's not, you know, it's not a reflexive um, reflex towards something that he doesn't like. It's controlled. It's predetermined judgment against sin It is the natural result of his holiness. That's what wrath is. Wrath is a natural byproduct of the holiness of God against sin. There's a difference there. I hope you see that. And secondly, the means of propitiation is is, is different. So, So how does the pagan propitiate their gods who are angry? We gotta do something. We gotta do something. We gotta somehow appease the gods. So let's have... Sacrifices, animal sacrifices, even human sacrifices. Let's, let's do penance. Let's punish ourselves somehow enough so that the gods will have favor on us. So we've got to earn somehow the appeasement of our angry gods. Whereas the difference is for the Christian, the difference is that we cannot placate the righteous anger of God. We have no means whatsoever to do so. Paul makes that clear. There is nothing we can do to appease the anger of God's wrath against sin. But God, in undeserved love towards us, has done for us what we cannot do for ourselves. There's the difference, major difference. Where other gods call on their people to die for them, our God died for us. He presented himself the sacrifice and he himself, as the executioner, crushed himself. We'll never understand that. We're never going to understand that kind of love. Any skeptic who begins to say that there's no loving God in the Bible if he judges people, they're they're lunatics. They've not read the whole Bible. They've not understood this kind of love that goes beyond human comprehension. No greater love has this than a man laid down his life. But in this case, not only did the man lay down his life, the same God took the life. How can it be? I mean, how, how can it be that God is the judge who condemns us and he's also the justifier that frees us? But that's, that's what that's what Paul deals with in what we're talking about today. How can he be both the prosecuting attorney and the defense attorney at the same time? That's what Paul's talking about here. And the whole point of what we're getting at here, the reason we've got to understand this idea of propitiation and appeasing God's wrath and how that had to happen, and how Christ's blood had to be shed and he had to be crushed in our place is to show us that grace is not cheap. I cannot presume upon the grace of God. R.C. Sproul puts it like this. There is no such thing as cheap grace. In justification, God does not merely decide unilaterally to forgive us. That is the prevailing idea, that God freely forgives us of sin because he is such a loving, dear, wonderful God. And he doesn't care that we violate everything that is holy. No, however... God will never lay aside his holiness to save us. That's powerful. God will never lay aside his holiness to save us. God demands that sin be punished. That is why the cross is the universal symbol symbol of Christianity. You begin to see this, I pray? John Stott put it like this. This is the righteous basis on which the righteous can be righteous. I'm sorry, this is, this is the righteous basis on which the righteous can righteous the unrighteous without compromising his righteousness. That's all, again, it's a hard thing to, to comprehend as humans. The righteous can righteous the unrighteous. That's what God does. Charles Cranfield put it like this god because in his mercy he willed to forgive sinful men and being truly merciful willed to forgive them righteously that is without in any way condoning their sin purposed to to direct against his own very self in the person of his son the full weight of that righteous wrath which they deserved i know it's a lot of stuff there but This is what propitiation means. This is what redemption means. This is what justification. All of this rests upon a holy God providing himself as the sacrifice and then crushing that sacrifice to appease his wrath against our sin. Because it was our sin that was on him. So it's not even like a pagan. Jesus actually became our guilt. He actually became our sin and God justly destroyed our sin in Christ. That's what it's saying. Look at Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 5, as this gospel was preached in the Old Testament. Look at this. Surely he, it's talking about Christ, but look at this. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. There's imputation. My sin, my sorrow, my grief was imputed to Christ. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten. Look at these words here, smitten by God. So again, who crucified Christ on the cross? I know we can argue, was it the Jews? Was it the Romans? But this settles it. It was God. It was God. Read that again. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Do you see that imputation taught there? My sin was placed upon him. And God's wrath fell totally upon him in my place. So what this means? Well, it means that all of those who by faith believe in Christ are made just That's the means of justification. So this is the big difference. Again, this is what what we're celebrating this month with the the idea of the Reformation Day, that the church was reoriented. That's what was happening. The church from the New Testament, we see Paul had it straight. (laughs) Paul was preaching it. But then through the years, the church began to move more towards a works-based righteousness, that we have to have something to do with it somehow. And what the Reformation did, it was a reorientation back to biblical truths of justification by faith alone in Christ. Nothing we do. He's done it all. So what is the means of our justification? How do we, how do we, uh, uh, we know that Christ is the one who accomplished it for us, but what is the means of us receiving that word of justification? Justification. Christ did all this work on the cross and he lived the perfect life, but now how does a person hear God declare to them, you're just? Romans 3 26. Look at this as we close here. Look at this. It was to show his righteousness at the present time. This again is why all this happened. It was to show his righteousness. This is, this, okay, let me just read the verse. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier. (sighs) So that's the cross. As Paul's saying, why did God overlook those sins all those years? Why were those in the Old Testament, all these sacrifices being made, right? Every year, the high priest would, would atone for the people, right? They'd have a sacrificial lamb, and they'd atone for the people. And they had to do it year after year after year. Why? Because it wasn't permanent. It was just a picture it was a foreshadow of the perfect sacrifice that was coming, the Lamb of God, that would one day come. So you picture that, right? Every year the, the sacrifice happens and it rolls the sins forward for a year and it rolls the sins forward and God is long-suffering. He's not bringing his wrath upon sinners. He's being long-suffering. And so every year it rolls forward and it rolls forward until the Lamb of God comes upon the scene. Paul's saying, At this present time. This was why God was forbearing. This was why he was waiting. So that now his righteousness. Would be exalted to the universe. The world will see. No greater love. Than what is displayed on Calvary. The just. And the justifier. That's That's how God can be. The one who condemns us for our sin. The perfect judge. And the one who pours out his wrath against that sin, but also the one who justifies us being the sacrifice himself. That's how. Then how do we receive it? Here it is. He's the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. I just want to reiterate this. That does not mean that you repeat a prayer after somebody and say, Jesus, save me. Or you don't just mumble the words, Jesus, coming into my heart. Jesus, coming into my heart. Man, I mean, I did that as a young guy so many times. Did I say it right, Lord? Let me cordially invite you into my heart. <laughs> Let me make room for you. I mean, I, over and over, I would pray that. To be, Am I saying the right stuff? And then one day, by God's grace, I saw, wait a minute, it's nothing that I say. Nothing that I do. It's all been done. It's finished. Christ did it. All I must do is... Have faith. And what is faith? It is a a trusting in, a believing in, a resting in the perfect work of Christ on my behalf. It's me giving up, saying, God, I can't be righteous enough. I, I am a sinner in need of your grace. And I rest and trust and believe in Christ. That's what it means. Have you been justified? Let's pray. Our Father God, thank you that the propitiation has been paid in Christ. The work has been done, and in his own words, he said, it is finished. Now, Father, I pray today that if there's one in this room that has trusted in anything else other than that perfect work, that they would confess that now to you. Repent of that, and with childlike faith and abandonment, run to Christ and totally trust him and him alone. As the sufficient means whereby they can be declared justified in your sight. We give you all the glory and we worship you who is worthy. In Christ's name we pray, amen.